Welcome back to Thinking Caps, the podcast that gets marketers thinking. Today, we are bringing in a chief data scientist, but not only a chief data scientist, but the. In 2019, Data IQ listed the 100 most influential people in a data-driven business, and Orlando Marchado was at the top, the numero uno guy. So what are we gonna talk about? We'll talk about his role as the chief data scientist at Aviva, a multinational insurance company serving tens of millions of customers. We'll talk a little bit about machine learning and AI. Is AI what you actually think it is? We'll define it a little better. We'll talk about segmentation and personalization at scale. Everything from small survey groups up to behavioral and observing, really why observing your consumer's behavior across multi-touch points is super crucial to prediction. And then we'll close out with things like uh, privacy and actually how do you be a disruptor inside of your company? How do you effectuate change? How do you get your teams to work together to take a data-driven approach? So let's get into it. This is gonna be a great episode. Right now, it is Thinking Caps. Excellent. Well, Orlando, um, I wanted to dive in with a, a question that I think reflects some of the changes that we're seeing uh, in businesses around us. Obviously, we're still in the midst of, of, of COVID-19, and uh, it's been very interesting having different CXOs come in and talk about what it actually means for their particular area. And actually, one of the last interviews we had was the chief uh, data officer, sorry, the uh, chief digital officer of Starhub. And that was interesting because, you know, being uh, chief digital officer right now, it's it's the hot seats of hot seats. You know, there's so much digital acceleration because of all the business moving online with all the lockdowns and stuff around the world. So my question is, is it, what's it like being a chief data officer in mm. the current situation, COVID-19? What kind of changes and impacts has had that to your to your role? Oh, wow. I mean, I think, um, as always, the application of data and data science is huge. You know, it can impact every part of our business. I think uh, one of the first challenging challenges for us was actually using data to understand the impact of the COVID-19 effect on our business for this year. You know, we're a big insurance business. We have people not traveling. We have people not driving, but we also have people with healthcare conditions. So we need to understand the mix of that. So there's a huge data science challenge around that. I think um, also logistically, I think if you run a very technical team, you suddenly need to get everybody working from home and you need to make sure that you have bandwidth. So I think, but for a, a short time early in the, the lockdown, we were pretty consumed with operational issues around how we made sure that people could be set up to analyze huge volumes of data from the comfort of their, their living room or their bedroom. Uh, and that came from, you know, that involves anything from giving people different screens to sorting out our network bandwidth. But I think now we're on to something quite interesting, which is looking at consumer trends, because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how embedded some of these new behaviors are going to be. I think um, generally the move towards digital has been an acceleration of things that have been happening for a long time. Yeah. You know, people are moving yeah. towards digital banking, but that was happening anyway. I think what we're seeing now is that people who haven't adopted those technologies are quickly being forced into moving those technologies. But we're also interested in travel and whether that's international travel or whether that's just domestic travel, whether that's use of cars. We don't quite know how that's going to pan out. So one of the things that we're doing from a data perspective is, is always looking for early indications. And we're looking at China, we're looking at other markets to see whether there are early indications that can be the, the first sign of a new consumer trend. 
That's, that's actually fascinating. I mean, I, I, the the inter, the looking at the trends in different markets to anticipate what might likely be a range of different scenarios in your home market is very very interesting. We haven't heard that actually before. I mean, we had we had um, some good good conversation. I mean, I'm thinking about people like um, Michael Stutz at uh, Blooming Brands, who yeah. was talking about how you know looking at the data as allowing them to sort of understand that. The people that they've got coming into the new delivery, you know, online channels, isn't actually the same people that were coming into the restaurants on a Friday night yep. and having a meal. And it's yep. and it's actually can they keep, you know, this new, you know, three hundred percent growth in online activity that they have going, as well as actually tempting people back as lockdowns have opened up in certain states back into the to the restaurant and then and obviously the mix of two if you can get people doing online and physical that has always been their most most valuable, most profitable segment. So there are different opportunities coming out of looking at data, but the the trend analysis stuff is very, very interesting. What 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 trade secrets can you tell us? Uh, yeah, <laughs> what's, what's, some, what's gonna happen next? Where's the secret sauce? <laughs> I'm not gonna give you trade secrets. I, I will say that um there's no secret about prediction. You know, I, I think people often think about data science as being like a crystal ball. And it's really, really not like that. We can build models that can sometimes give very accurate predi predictions. But more often than that, the secret is spotting on spotting something very early, so early signal detection, rather than really trying to predict things. I think I think that's that's probably as close to the secret I'm going to. Yeah. Right. So let's let's go back a step to that because without the data, without collecting the right data, and and having the good data, you can't find the signals, right? And you can't look at the trends. So let's go back to the concept we were talking about before we started recording, like this observing the right data from consumers and, and, uh, and, and your channels. Um, can you kind of dumb down? I know you're, you're up here. I mean, you're like, he was the guy in 2019 from a data perspective. Like, uh, what should marketers be thinking about from a collection standpoint across their channels, consumer behavior, consumer insights, and how, why should they be observing? And why do you think observe is, is a keyword there? I think, a lot of marketing historically has been gut feel, and it has also involved a lot of research, and we're talking about very small-scale survey research. And I think I'm still a very big fan of qualitative research and really trying to deeply understand through conversations and through interrogation how consumers are feeling about things. But I think small-scale surveys are quite limited in what they can tell you. I think consumers are very, find it very difficult to tell you how they're going to think about something new. Whereas I think observing is the key to understanding how consumers really react to something new. And the key difference over the last 20 years, and I've been playing around in the data field for probably about 25 years, but the key difference in the last you know, 10 to 20 years, and maybe even the last 10 years, has been the growth in the number of data sources available, primarily driven by technology, you know, smartphones in particular, the growth in, in digital devices, internet of things to some extent, but the key for a marketer for me should be to look for the opportunities to collect data on what people are really doing rather than trying to guess or rather than trying to ask people. Because we all know if you ask somebody something, their you know, views are clouded or they find it very difficult to tell, tell you about what they're going to do tomorrow. You know, intention is not a very good predictor of behavior. Whereas we have so many true behavioral sources now that we should look to those first. And I think that's what I'd say to a marketer, look for the, the truth first and supplement it with, with uh, research where you need to. But increasingly, you don't need to. Increasingly, there's a true source of data on actual behavior 
that should be the gold standard. Have you seen a change in the kind of uh, consumer research, you know, the, how much consumer research your organisation and others have do, been doing through traditional means with focus groups, et cetera, uh, as you've been able to unlock observing uh, behaviour through a range of different other data channels? Well, I guess um, I would probably separate out focus group type research, so true call research where it's facilitated and somebody's trying to direct a conversation to try to understand things that they wouldn't have guessed about, wouldn't have thought about. Because I still think the value there is that is trying to come up with good questions to ask later. Sometimes you don't always know the questions to ask, let alone the answers. So I think that, that that type of traditional research has a real role there. I think um, where I see a, a more of a challenge, but I think it's still quite a big established industry is in more survey type research where you're, you're trying to do at scale what actually you can maybe better do with data. So if you're trying to ask 20,000 people some, what, what they think about something or how they're going to behave, why not try to work out how they do behave in that situation? And I think that's where I see the big shift. So the, the, the sort of scale surveys rather than the very small research, which I, I still think is difficult to replicate because you don't always know the, the right questions to ask. So I see the industry, the, the, the large surveys being somewhat replaced by data. Uh, for me, I think that could probably happen faster. I think that people don't always think creatively about how to get the answers through data. You know, I want to ask you about that because I think what you're what you're explaining there, I, I look at or what I take is a big trend analysis, right? Like big numbers. We can look at the data. We can look at behavior and then we can predict things. How about at the individual level, right? The Tim Glom level. Like, I today want a hot dog, not a hamburger. Like, how is it? How important is it to get my actual affinity or intent or psychographic information that probably can't be deduced from large-scale, you know, data behavior, you know, one-to-mass one versus the one-to-one? -one? How do you balance that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, what's interesting is the way that traditional techniques like segmentation have evolved to take advantage of these data sources because you know, in, the, in the 90s we would see big segmentation exercises happening where you'd come up with six target groups and they'd be based on research but the challenge then would be you wouldn't know which individuals fell into which groups exactly and i think largely yeah. that was there's a big move in the, the sort of late 90s around using more behavioral data to try to understand you know, i was involved um, in a company called Dunhumby that, that created the Tesco club card scheme in, in the UK. Uh, it worked with Kroger in the US, uh, but it was all about using loyalty data to try to understand actual customer behavior at the individual level. And quite often we would be segmenting customers using that data, but the difference would be we'd be segmenting in a way that would mean you could identify which segment that a customer could fall into, which is much more powerful. I think the way that that has evolved has been about using more and more data from a variety of different sources and not just yeah, you know, loyalty card data, but increasingly online behavioral sources to be able to create smaller and smaller segments. So it might not be required to understand Tim exactly what you're doing, but to understand Tim and his lookalikes or who are the small groups of people that we think are behaving in similar ways and how do these people broadly like to be interacted with? And it's not just about the individual product, you know, it could be the individual product, but I think increasingly it's things like, does Tim like to see images in a piece of communication or does he like to see text? Or does he like to see 
brand statements or does it want to be told about the, the service or, or the offer or the discount? You, know, you can tailor the style of communication based on, on what very, very small groups of people really like in a, in a piece of communication. So it's actually quite interesting. The, um, you know, we've been talking to a lot of uh, folks in the loyalty space, and this is a big part of what Cheetah does. We have had a series of, of interviews of kind of loyalty experts. And, and whilst, you know, we are always talking about the importance of, of, of data collection within a loyalty uh, program, it's quite interesting to hear some people say, you know, actually the loyalty program is just about data. You know, the fact that we're giving yeah, pit tiers away, and yeah. points and all the rest of it is almost ancillary for us as an organization. It's all about data. It's, yeah, it's just a vehicle for the data. Yeah, yeah so I say it's a couple of things. I, th I think that is clearly where the value sits. But I think in a great loyalty scheme, there's there's always a uh, an open deal that you have with the consumer. The trade is that a consumer openly shares data. And as in return, they get better offers, better products, better discounts. And, and importantly, those are discounts on the things that they actually want to buy. Yeah, no, that, 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 we, we talk a lot about the that, the value exchange, exchange yeah. with, with consumers in return for that, that, that data transaction, if you like. You know, I'll tell you about myself in return for, for some value back to me. And, and obviously, loyalty programs are a perfect construct. And although, you know, I've, I've used the term myself, but loyalty programs in a way are a, a slight misnomer. I think there are very few brands that command a genuine loyalty in the way that maybe football teams might command loyalty. Right. I think yeah. what, what brands can command is a, a great deal. You know, you could have put a great deal on the table and if it's there and if it's right for the consumer, then the consumer will come and they'll want to buy it. It's actually interesting. You mentioned, lo uh, lo uh, you know, loyalty in, in football, soccer. Actually, we've we've got a lot of Premiership teams, a lot of uh, you know Real Madrids and you know, folks around the world that have been using our platform, and and actually you know a lot of that is based around experiences, tutor experience, which allows us to to run you know quizzes and challenges and instant wins and surveys, allowing them to build their fan database and then our messaging platform to be able to message to that 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 fan base around the world at scale. But actually, latterly, we've been having many conversations about loyalty because whilst people are loyal to the club and they don't have to fight for that, when they're thinking about monetization strategies, they want to make they want to provide a reason for fans to visit that sponsors content, you know, that advertising hub that, you know, been built with Heineken for the Champions League or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, and so using loyalty as a way of getting people to go do what they want them to do is the way that they're looking at loyalty, which is which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think the big opportunity there is that, that for the first time you can tap into, you know, for, for a soccer team or for a football team, you can kind of tap into your fan base wherever they happen to be. It doesn't have to be a localized activity. So I think if you get the formula right, I think um, yeah, you're onto a real winner. I think that you know, fans will really want to engage, and you can engage with them wherever they happen to be in the world. So I've got, I've got a question to, to spin around a tangent, which really comes back to um, some of the you know your experience in actually creating the right environment within an organisation yep. to be able to make decisions based on on data you know we, we talked to a lot of companies and there's a lot of variance in sophistication in terms of the importance they put on data 
to actually power decisions. I mean, everyone's doing it to some level, but there is great variation in the investment and the importance that some organizations put on put on that. So my question is really, how, how do you go about sort of setting up that environment to, to really make decisions and, based on data? And you stole my question, so I'm going to put in my line what I wanted from this because you're at Aviva, head of, uh, data science at Aviva, you know, multinational insurance company with tens of millions of customers, and you have said... You were excited to be there and turn that 320-plus-year-old company into a disruptor, right? To take a dinosaur, what might, some might say in the financial services, and turn it into a disruptor. So uh, this is the exact question I want as well. How does the medium-sized or the you know, medium-level marketer look at data science and, and, and create the environment to, to be the agent of change? Good question, Richard. <laughs> yeah, great questions. And I think... There isn't one answer to this. And I, I think the only thing you can do is try to attack the problem from as many different angles as possible. Um, I don't think there's any substitute from senior level buy-in. You know, I think if, if the CEO or if the exec team is not interested in using data to make a change or to make better decisions or to make better processes, I think it's very hard to, to win that battle. So I think for me, I think top-level engagement is is part of this, and I that could involve some degree of education. You know, helping people understand what seem like quite complex topics, but explaining them in terms that are commercially relevant. So I think you know, the data science team or the marketing team or the technology team needs to engage with as high a level in the organisation as possible. I think in the um, the, the type of data scientist, if you get onto the the disruption angle. It comes down to who are the, the technology and data people that, that are in the team. And I think, you know, for me, I, I look for people that are technically skilled. But equally, I'm looking for people that can collaborate with people who are not data scientists. You know, people need to be able to communicate. And they also need to be able to really talk about the business value of what it is that they're offering. You see many people that are setting up you know, supposedly disruptive innovation or technical teams, but they're working on purely technical products, uh, pro products or projects without thinking enough about the commercial benefit. So I think the role for the yeah. tech savvy marketer yeah. is to, to bridge the gap between those two worlds, to understand that the data world and the data science world, and they don't need to be a deep specialist, but they need to understand the opportunities. And they need to be able to translate that into real business benefit. And again, you, know, that, as, you need to be able to do that at, at uh, as high a level as possible. Yep, yep. So how have you how have you uh, kind of uh, structured or evolved um, the your kind of the 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 data team within uh, Aviva? I mean, is 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 having you know a chief data officer uh, or chief data scientist really important because it's getting that C level recognition? You know, do you have any tips and tricks in terms of how you would set go about setting up a data scientist uh, organization team? I think. Um Different organizations can work in very, very different ways. And I think Aviva, we're a global company. We're, up, we, we're in you know, 16 markets. We have a lot of federation in our business. So we have different teams operating uh, you know, in different markets without that much you know, central management, although we'll have some kind of central governance. And the key for data science is to be as close as possible to the, the actual business, so, so where, um, where the money is being made as well as having the right level of governance centrally. So we actually have a fairly small team centrally, but we have lots of data science teams that are managed in local business units. So you know, our, our team in Singapore 
is managed through our, our Singapore CEO. So although some of my responsibility sits across a whole data science community, which could involve things like making sure that we're working to best practice or making sure that we're knowledge sharing, making sure that we're using the right kind of technology or doing research into areas like you know, algorithm transparency or sort of you know, hot topics, we also have to have a degree of management that happens locally because the, the worst thing that can happen for a data science team is for it to seem like a, an academic distant endeavor it needs to be seen as part of the business. Oh. Um, yeah, I mean, management of that is major. That, that's not my role. So good. It's great. We have people like you and companies organizing all of us. I have a question, though, that's a, a, coming back down out of the clouds a little bit. Machine learning and AI. Can you give us practical examples and applications, you know, on how that, you know, how the, you know, again, middle-level manager or, or middle-level marketer, can think about how AI and ML can affect their consumer journey. Do you have any, you know, examples of, of how that works and some of your thought process around that application? Mm. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so firstly, I, I, I often think that the term AI is, is not helpful in that it's so broad, it can cover anything from automating a very, very mundane task using one line of code all the way through to sentient machines that we think Thank are going to have you. some kind of autonomy. <laughs> Thank you. And this is the head of data science agreeing. I agree. So please enlighten us. Let's, let's, let's find a new language. To that said, I think we, what we don't want to do is, is underplay what we're doing. Because if other people are saying we're doing AI, we'll, we'll end up saying, well, yeah, we're doing AI. And we are. We are absolutely using machine learning on cutting edge um, applications to improve our customer journeys. But I think the term AI internally can confuse people because somebody that's not a technical specialist can imagine there's some some machine that's making all, all of the decisions or, or, or some some machine that's somehow out of control. Whereas the reality is we have a number of different machine learning models and they broadly do the same thing. They try to say, we have a whole lot of data on historical behavior at a very granular level. And how do we distill that down into a few things that we can use to make better decisions? Those might be trends, they might be predictions, they might be summaries of things that have happened before. But how do you distill 10 million data records into a few things that we think are going to be relevant to this decision? And some of those decisions we can automate. So if you want to, to if you're if you're watching Netflix and you get a recommendation about the next thing that that you know you might want to watch, that's an automated decision based on Netflix trying to match you to other people that are like you and distilling all of that data on all of those trends and patterns into the relevant information, which is the thing that you might want to watch next. But you can do that across everything. You know, you can, in financial services, actually, it's quite, uh, it's quite an embryonic science because financial services are, are quite difficult. Trying to predict the next product that you might want in a financial services sector is, is difficult. And we also have to have considerations around affordability or vulnerability or other kind of um, you know, governance factors. So it's a difficult challenge. But the key point with, with machine learning is that you're trying to take a huge amount of data, boil it down into the trends that help you make a better decision next. And then sometimes you can, you can automate that decision. I think there are loads of examples in, in marketing specifically. You can think about customer journeys and yeah. two different customer journeys yeah. might be right for different types of people. If you have data on the, different, on the history of who's interacted with, with which decision, you might use machine learning to boil it down to these three characteristics that might make it relevant to put somebody into one journey rather than a second journey. 
actually in practice you probably won't use three you might use a few hundred and you might use a complex algorithm to do that but the concept is the same you're trying to get to the most relevant information to put the most compelling piece of content in front of your customer so that's a really, I mean, it's a really good point because when you think about, you know, if you dove down into the marketing in, in particular, you know, you've got segmentation, personalization, customer journey, optimization. There's a raft of different technical infrastructure challenges and opportunities that companies need to address so that they can actually collect the data, then see and analyze the data. And then there's the pressures to make the data actionable, you know, obviously maybe coming from... The, marketing some of those other areas so the question is really how do you triangulate around those different sort of uh you know stakeholder requirements you know you've got the each industry each company is different but you've got the cio that's you know going to be responsible for some of those technical decisions putting in data lakes and cdps and what have you you've got the marketing team that want to you know find out these insights to, to drive more personalized offers and you know deliver better customer journeys and they want to make data actionable and then you've got you know data scientist teams that it's all about how do we you know get the data and, and make it accessible and build insights to it so a number of different sort of stakeholders how do how do you, how do you go about as a as a you know in a, in aviva or in other organizations navigating all those different stakeholder you know pressures um, the tip I'd give is don't try to solve everything right. and maybe just try and solve one thing. So, so I, I think a, a tip that's worked for us has been picking one thing and trying to solve all of the technical challenges around getting that one thing working. So a few years ago, we said we want to follow up somebody that has been on one of our insurance pages with a relevant email that recognized the, the journey that they've been through on our site. And we couldn't do that at the time. But we thought we're not going to try and solve anything else. We'll just try and solve that one customer use case, because also it was something that when, when it was solved, we could actually put in front of customers and it could actually drive business benefit. But in doing that, it meant that we fixed a whole load of uh, you know, features of our technical legacy that weren't connected before. We had systems that weren't connected before. You know, they, they now are, and we can now use those features to, to drive other pieces of benefit. But it all came from picking one use case. And this is not a technical use case, it's the business use case. It's some, something that our, our marketing director can talk about. You know, he wants to be able to, to connect up these two pieces of customer experience and make them a, a, a little bit um, more kind of seamless. So we could use that as a rationale behind fixing a whole load of technical challenge that we wouldn't have been able to fix otherwise. So pick the one thing, really try hard to fix that, then put it live, and then other good things will come. Good advice. Yeah, that is, that is good advice. Focus. Another question then, maybe, maybe is as 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 the um, as de as the use of data evolves in organisations as well. I mean, I mean, I've been in the business twenty odd uh, years now. Um, uh, you know, doing marketing uh, technology, marketing software, and in that period of time, there has been some fundamental changes in the underlying technology to uh, manage and process you know, big data and things like Hadoop and other other, other techno technological advances. So I guess the question is, do you think that we are, you know, those changes happen relatively quickly. They empower new ways of looking at data, new ways of collecting at data. Do, do we, are the boardrooms of, of, of the US, the UK, you know, are they, have they caught up 
with the data literacy that they need because of the sheer explosion and the ability to to to, mm. to learn from data, or are we are we still playing catch up? Be really interested in your, your thoughts on that. Well, I think technology will always move faster than the boardroom of, of the, the US or the UK or, or anywhere for that matter. Um, I, I think maybe it's different now. Technology is moving so fast and these different use cases are happening so fast and startups are actually turning technology into businesses at, at a faster pace than ever before. I think where startups sometimes struggle is, is scale sometimes. You know, there are clearly exceptions, but sometimes startups can struggle with scale. So there's still a role for you know, big established companies to partner in, in, in that kind of you know, ecosystem. But I think, you know, I think generally the board is lagging behind as a whole. There, were, there are exceptions, but I think we're seeing increased appetite. You know, we're seeing more board level technical roles in, in well-established companies that I think we've seen for, for a very long time. Um, and I think that's a sign that people have recognized that you need a certain degree of, of technical literacy at the board and at the exec team to make you know, to make the most of the assets that you have in your in your, your customers in your brand in all the things that we we've, we've known about for a very long time. I think interestingly also we're seeing more non-exec roles that are also coming from from technical backgrounds. And again, that, that's a, a recognition that we we need you know, governance and oversight as well as day-to-day -day management that is is much more data literate. But I, I think the trend is is going in the right way. It will always lag behind a little bit, but I think the trend is is very encouraging. Well, as we as we near towards the end of our time with Orlando, I have one last question for him, and I'm, I'll give you the, your last question. But Orlando, I, I, this one can be short too. But uh, I don't get a lot of time talking to people in the financial services and, and, and FinServe space. So, and you're there, and you're chief data officer up there at one. Do you see a trend, or can, or is there some advice? that you can give the marketing team inside of those financial services, insurance, financial banking, et cetera, to say, look, if you're going to start, if you're not data centric and you're not looking at data science, and you're not you know, looking at true behavior at scale, like where would you suggest that they start in context to having a good marketing outcome, whether that's personalization or, or a better journey? Is there something they could focus on what kind of data they could focus on to, to have a better marketing experience for their customers and consumers? I think um, the answer is still a, an evolution of the traditional answer, which is about segmenting your database in, in intelligent ways. You know, I think if you get insights out of your database, these are proprietary things sometimes. You know, customers might have provided the data, but only you have the oversight of your whole customer base. You could understand exactly the nuances in that base that you can then mine and turn into commercial advantage. That can lead you to create relevant products, relevant experiences, uh, you know, relevant brand propositions, all of these kind of things. But start with trying to learn something from your data that you didn't know before. Yeah, and I, I mean, that's, it's great to hear you say that. It's so key to our, our mission at uh, Digital, you know, with the uh, our engagement data platform, which is, you know, effectively our CDP, to bring in all this data from very wide set of sources and then apply you know, segmentation, machine learning, AI, you know, to look for opportunities to deliver those personalized offers, these personalized messages, the, the ability to build that relationship at an, an individual level. So, you know, completely agree with you there. A amen to, to all of that. Um, I, I just wanted to finish with la one last uh, qu question, which um, is, is something that we've talked about a little bit, uh, or quite a lot actually on, on, on the show. And I'm just interested to see how it kind of impacts 
um, your role. And that's that's privacy. You know, there's obviously a hell of a lot of disruption in terms of um, privacy and how consumers, um, you know, want their data respected, how it can be collected, how it can be used, etc. Now, obviously, chief data scientist, you're going to be bringing in data from many different sources, not necessarily always sort of personal data or PII data. But maybe if you could comment on has it has it and, and if it has, how has it impacted kind of your your role? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think at our um, exec level across the group, we're thinking about data strategy in three ways. You know, we're thinking about data science and the, the, the great things we can do with data. We're also thinking about data engineering, which is about making sure that the data is surfaced in the right way or productionized and, and all those things. But equally, we're thinking about ethics and governance. And that's the conversation that we have at a very, very senior level. And I think um, uh, around the use of data, when we ask consumers what they feel about that or how they feel, that the first thing that they think about is security. So they want to make sure that the data that they trust us with is being kept safe and secure. So we've put out what we call a customer data charter to, to make statements about data security. But the second thing we said in, in the customer data charter was around selling data. So we don't, your customers don't like it if you do things with data without their permission. Yeah, for us, that's about selling data. So we don't sell customer data. We've been public about that. But interestingly, um, the third part of our customer data charter, which customers have responded really well to, is us saying we do use data to create better products and better services. So we're hearing that if you say that and you're open about that, then customers are very interested in using data if you're driving value for them. So as long as you've got the security right, and as long as you're not abusing the trust that customers have in the data, we're seeing that customers are open to using data to drive value for them. But we have to do that in a very, very controlled and strict governance framework. And I think that's um, that has to be appropriate for exactly what, what it is that you're doing. You know, in financial services, we're a very heavily regulated industry. We're a very, uh, very heavily kind of controlled industry. We've got lots of risks. We need to understand them. We need to understand the benefits. But what we're seeing is a good sense that customers want you to make intelligent use of the data that, that they trusted you with. Brilliant answer. Brilliant answer. Yeah. Orlando, uh, I know we've come up to the end of our time. Oh, so have. thank you very much. Some really interesting things to come through there. Importance of the value exchange, getting the 360 degree view of the consumer, how to navigate some of those decisions around, you know, getting data literacy throughout the organization. So uh, some really good uh, nuggets of information there. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, this has been great. And depending on when you're stumbling across this episode of Thinking Caps, uh, Cheetah Digital is participating in a data table talk that Orlando will be presenting at in late November of 2020. So whether that's before or after, check out CheetahDigital.com. We'll be able to get you that session. Orlando, you'll be speaking, I'm sure, many other events as you do. Is there anything else, anything we can promote for you or anywhere people can, can find or follow you? Well, all I promote is, is the career of data science. I think it's become cool. a very well-established career. It's still really exciting. The data in the world is still... Uh, an untapped challenge and so yeah please do get involved thank you very much yeah all right well great thanks uh, again it was great to have you and we'll see you next time on thinking caps <laughs>